Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinus. Makalua. The main team. Mega Bears fan. Happy Saturday, Internets, and welcome to Polycast episode 385. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Mega Bears fan, joined as always by Canis Albinus. They never tell you that if you've had COVID, the vaccine really hurts. I think it hurts for a lot of people, even if you haven't had COVID yet. It was bad. And also Makalua, who hopefully is not sore from a vaccination as well. Not yet, but that's on my agenda for for soon. And uh, thanks. When I got my second shot, I had like fever chills later that night. Really bad. Uh, My girlfriend was laughing at me because it was like 80 or 90 degrees uh, outside and, you know, pretty warm in the house. And I was like sitting there shivering all wrapped up in a blanket all evening. I was told to expect a bad reaction because I had the virus back in December. So, yeah. My mom uh, had a, a similar uh, experience with it. She had it back in November and then got the vaccine earlier this year and was uh, sick for a few days, I think. I didn't get much done yesterday, but I'm mostly over it now. Well, that's good to hear. And we, of course, hope that you uh, feel much better soon. Yes. Also, the me and team should be here a little bit later. Um, we're not sure for sure, certain, but we're expecting. Yeah, he is also possibly feeling a bit under the weather. In today's news, the Civilization VI anthology has just been released, which pretty much confirms that there's no more new content coming out for Civ VI. And uh, it is a pack of all existing Civ content, almost all, and uh, is all available for $50 for the next two weeks, starting one day last week. So. So at some point around the 25th of uh, June is when the $50 price point goes away. I don't know if we know what it'll be after that, but it's a good chance to get somebody the game if they don't already have some of it. You said almost all the content. What uh, does this not include? So yeah, there was a little bit of salt in the forum community when it was discovered that the Persona packs for uh, Ryder Teddy and Magnificence Catherine are not included. Huh. I wonder if that was just an oversight, maybe, by Firaxis or 2K. I I don't know if it was intended to be a New Frontiers Pass exclusive or not, but it does seem like an oversight. 
maybe they'll be added in a patch. I don't know. Yeah, especially if, uh, like, Montezuma, and I think there were maybe one or two others that were supposed to be, like, pre-order bonuses. Uh, if those are included, then yeah, it definitely seems like those Persona packs should be included as well. Montezuma was a free DLC that was available for 90 days exclusively to pre-purchasers. Oh, it was just a timed exclusive. So okay. it was a timed exclusive. Yeah, but usually even an- anthologies or complete collection type things have all the little bits, so that does seem like it's an oversight as opposed to a deliberate choice for a exclusive thanks for buying Frontiers Pass. Here's two things you can have that nobody else can ever have now. That seems kind of rude. Are the Persona packs like available for purchase on Steam by themselves? I don't think so. I'm not even exactly sure where they come from. I was under the impression for the longest time that they were a free update. But apparently they are not. Yeah, I thought they came with one of the New Frontiers updates. But I could be wrong about that. Let's take a look at the Civ Wiki and see what they say about it. Yeah, it was in the Frontier Pass. It was definitely two of the updates, and I think it was... In the middle, kind of-ish? Yeah, that's how I remember it. They came out with the Ethiopia pack and are exclusively available to those who bought the New Frontiers pass. So that's pretty crappy. Also, I kind of expected them to make more of them when they said that Personas were a thing that was going to happen, but... Oh, you mean more than just, like, two... Yeah, more than just two that came out on the same day. Yeah, because every pack since then, we've been sort of going, ooh, will we get something else, Something another alternative? Nope, nope, nope. And now here we are. Yeah, it's, it's especially funny that we've had, uh, like, they, they basically put in this alternate uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Catherine characters, basically just so that they could have another leader ability for, you know, those leaders and those uh, civilizations, because I think there was always kind of an opinion that those leaders weren't very, you know, good. Uh, but it's kind of ironic that we've had England, or, you know, I think Victoria had her, like, power, like, completely changed, at least twice. Yet no persona pack for her that, like, restores the old abilities or something similar to the old abilities for those who, you know, maybe might have liked them. To be fair, the old abilities were really bad. Yeah, true, but, you know, they didn't just replace Teddy Roosevelt with a new ability. They made an alternate leader instead of uh, making alternate leaders or skins or whatever for uh, Victoria. I'm just saying there was, you know, definitely more potential there for doing that for other leaders who have had their abilities dramatically altered as opposed to just replacing them outright and then not being able to go back and play the old versions. Steampunk Victoria, anybody? That would be pretty cool. I like steampunk things. But yeah, this by itself would not necessarily mean the uh, end of Civilization VI, because we've seen, like, gold editions and stuff like that come out for games in the past before they're completely finished. In fact, I think even Civ VI had, like, some kind of gold or complete edition or something that came out after Gathering Storm, but before New Frontiers. But this... Was it Platinum? Yeah. Uh, This combined with the, you know, thank you post from the developers and 
uh, announcement yeah. that Fraxis is working on like four new games or whatever. I, I think all that combined definitely tells us that uh, Civ Six is probably finished, almost certainly finished. I think I heard Solid Snake get detected in the background. Yeah, you did. I got a text message. It's the perfect text. That text message sound. <laughs> yeah, you make a charitable donation once, and then they start sending you mailers and text messages like every dang week. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. I, I gave you $25 once. You have probably spent way more than that on envelopes and postage at this point. Like, leave me the heck alone. They get that stuff for free. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. Still, though, it's uh, a, a lot of the donations I make are to, like, environmental charities, so I do feel irked that they keep sending me paper, mail, and flyers. Like, yeah, that's like no, I sent you money so we could stop killing trees, so please stop killing trees. Anyway, sorry, that's my completely off-topic rant. <laughs> it's one yeah. I understand, because I get envelopes from a not environmental charity, but one that I donate. It's like, guys, guys, I'm going to give you more money later than you. You don't have to waste all this envelopes on me. Well, what I do specifically is I run a fantasy football league with some friends and coworkers, and there's like a buy-in at the start of the year. And at the end of the year, I match the total buy-in from everybody, and I donate it to a charity or nonprofit of the champion's choice, in addition to the champion getting the actual, like, pot of uh, contributions themselves. So... You know, these end up being one-time donations because it's on behalf of someone else. But yet I still end up getting all the dang mail and emails and uh, text messages for more charity. And it's like, no, sorry, <laughs> this was a one-time thing. Unless that person wins fantasy football again and wants to make another donation. Yeah. Talk to them. Yeah, exactly. But it's uh, my credit card number. Or, or my name on the credit card, so that's the person they bug. Anyway, sorry. Completely unrelated to civilization. <laughs> Just a little bit. So instead of a charity royale, we could have a leader royale? Oh, at least that's... Huh? Huh? I, okay. I thought somebody said something. That is what's going over on over at Civanatics, anyway. Uh, Loronic... Kanan, who's one of the mods, posted this. This it's almost time to throw down. They're going to there is a Civ Six Leader Royale kicking off May 20th on Twitter, and Civ fans have a front row seat. No tourists, no tanks, just your favorite civil leaders facing off in a history making tournament. Only one could come in on top. Yeah, this is already over. Oh, is it? Yeah, wow. it ended a few days ago. That's why I waited. It was it was starting last week for the last show. But I left it off because it was in the middle of being voted on. But ah. this was not Civ Fanatics that did this. This was the the main. This was Civ Twitter that did this. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's well, a, a link. Yeah, there's a link in the top post to the actual Fraxis page uh, where they uh, posted this, and their Twitter has been tweeting. I had actually not noticed that it was actually from uh, Fraxis. I was actually when I was seeing the tweets, I was thinking it was from like one of the fan. Uh, Twitter accounts. Wait, is this themselves a way of finding out who we like the best to know who to include next time? Possibly. Yeah, it's a t social media popularity contest. Which is why uh, I suspect that America was not on the list. Oh, I'd assume <laughs> they put all the leaders, but I guess that wouldn't no. fit in a 32 leader bracket now, would it? There were several that they didn't put in. Um, 
America was one that I thought was a good choice to leave out because I don't like Roosevelt, but um, who else did they leave out? I feel like they left out a lot of people that really should not have been left out. Just looking at this picture, I do not think I'm seeing Wilford Laurier of Canada or uh, John Curtin from Australia. Mm, I don't think I see uh, Menelik either. So Ethiopia was out. I don't see uh, Congo either. But Vietnam's in here. But Vietnam's there. Zulus are there. Ethiopia is kind of a surprising one, in my opinion, to get left out, considering they're like a top-tier religious civilization. England's not there. Uh, I don't think I'm seeing the Georgian... Oh, no, there she is. I think the Greeks are left out as well. Uh, no, I see Gorgo in one of them. Okay, yeah. Oh, Gorgo's in one of them? Yeah, she's also... yeah, she's wedged in between Cleopatra and... Uh... Gitjura? Is that how you say her name? Gitarja. Gitarja, yeah. It's mostly, I think, um, like, I don't think Brazil is in here either, are they? I'm, I'm not, not seeing him. Yeah, I see Portugal, but not Brazil. And Philip isn't in here. Uh, Darius isn't. Did you say Philip of Spain? I think I see him. He's in the second oh, bracket it looks like yeah. next to uh Genghis. Oh you're right, he is there. Also this is kind of where that it's the first group things are fours and then the, everything else is one two you know one on one like a normal bracket. Yeah, which makes me think that they probably could have crammed every leader into the game if they're going to do these group things anyway. Like it might not have been not all the groups maybe would have ended up being even because uh, I, I don't know exactly how many leaders are in the game. But, uh, yeah, like, they definitely could have squeezed... I mean, I think we just at least named eight leaders right there, so that's one more in each group. Yeah. Somebody would have gotten a free pass on to uh, another round, but, you know, if they weren't that popular, they'd get eliminated anyway, so... Oh, I guess Catherine de' Medici is English, isn't she? Uh, French... No, she's England and France. No, that's uh, Eleanor. No, 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 Eleanor of Aquitaine. Excuse me. I got it backwards. So both French leaders went up against each other in the second round, I think. No. But yeah, I, I think uh, Canis might be right that they probably just avoided putting in some of those you know, America and Canadian leaders uh, and probably the Australian leader so that there's not a lot of uh, national uh, favoritism, considering that those are the probably some of the largest markets for the game. Brazil, too. Oh, is China's oh, leader yeah. in here? I wonder. Mongolia is. I'm not seeing uh, the Chinese leader. Oh no! Yeah, they they were trying to avoid the ballot box cut and stuffing with people. Brazil would definitely do that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I definitely do think you're right, Candice, That it's the largest markets where the game is sold are seem to be the leaders who are just like cut, not even there for consideration. Nubia's not there either. Yeah, and then a few others who I guess unfortunately got the cut because they just didn't have room to put them in there. We make a proper bracket. 
the final winner was Trajan, so. Rome abode. OP Rome as usual. It was Rome versus Gilgamesh, and Rome won. Gilgamesh has been one of my favorites uh, since um, Vanilla Civ 6 came out. I think I also Gilgamesh. really enjoyed Poundmaker, but I'm not seeing Poundmaker in any of these groups either. Oh, yeah. Also rude. Yeah, Poundmaker would have been one of my uh, top picks. Gilgamesh is like the meme top pick because he's like the nicest leader you could go against. Well, he's also... He just make... Oh, go ahead. If you're nice to him at the beginning of the game, he'll love you for the rest of the game. And vice versa as well. Or the uh, inverse is also true. Yeah. But he's also, in my opinion, very beginner-friendly uh, because he has lots of early game stuff. He's got the war carts for early war rushing. He's got those uh, bonuses for finding barbarians, which is you know something that a lot of beginner players are going to be encouraged to do. So he's a very beginner-friendly Civ as well, which means I think a lot of people getting into Civ 6 will probably play as Gilgamesh or will be recommended to play as Gilgamesh by other players. I'm also not, don't think I'm seeing the, is Hammurabi in here? The Babylonian leader? Yes, he is. So I, I can't fault the internet for picking Gilgamesh, because I like him as well. He is the biggest bro. He, he is a big bro, that's for sure. <laughs> in the literal and metaphorical senses. Maximum bro fist. He's the one. Also, hello, me and team. Hello. Yes, welcome. What is everybody else's favorite leader who you would have voted for? Not included in the poll, because I pro apparently because I play them too much or something. <laughs> Let me guess, Maki. John Curtin. <laughs> I'm a meme within myself on that one. I feel like he's lost a little bit of his luster in Civ 6, but Shaka's always fun. Yeah, Shaka's still on the list of... of <clears throat> I don't want to see them popping up in my game. I guess, but it's not as oppressive as he was in Civ 5 or especially 4. Same thing with Montezuma. The crazies in Civ 6 are still somewhat, but it's not the same. I think in uh, all the Civ games that I've played, Montezuma ends up uh, being kind of a pushover because he'll declare war on people too early and then get pushed back and stomped and then is yep. like out of the game for the rest of the game. In most cases, that's how it goes down. I am curious what they mean by the winner will take over our Twitter channel for a full month. Like, does that just mean they're going to swap out, like, the Twitter profile picture for Trajan? Or, like, are they going to start posting tweets, like, in the persona of Trajan? Or are they just going to, like, post a bunch of little, like, game clips of, like, you know, Roman gameplay? Or, or what, what exactly is this going to mean? Well, I don't know if that has started yet. I don't know either. I haven't looked at it. I remember there being a... a, a uh, Twitter user, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce the the name, Donald the Unready, I think, who was, like, spoofing the president during the previous administration as, like, a medieval king. 
And uh, that was quite amusing. I wonder if they're going to go do something in sort of that direction, although obviously without the blatant politics involved, but just kind of like spoofing stuff uh, in the persona of a Roman emperor. Oh, he'll be taking over the Civ Twitter account in July, so be prepared for his... I wonder if that means they'll be uh, posting in Latin. Oh, that could be fun. <laughs> and that also, I, I guess, means that they're going to wait until, like, after Pride Month is over. So, you know, they're not, like, mm. doing Pride Month for, like, a week and then switching over to a new uh, no, profile yeah. pic. I mean, I can't wait to hear him call Jupiter Lovin. <laughs> because the the line reader didn't recognize that the J was, that the I was not an L. Oh, my goodness. That is, like, the most basic thing. They did it right in Civ 5. Why didn't they do it right in Civ 6? Ah, well, dead language. Fun with dead languages. Oh, Mansa Musa was in Trajan's starting oh. bracket. He would have made it further, I think, if he was in a lot of the other groups. Because he's amusing. I did notice that they have severely cut down the number of times he goes, ha, 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 ha. No, they shouldn't have done that. They should have made him as annoying as possible. Well, it could be worse. It could be the uh, Beyond Earth leaders saying, oh, gosh, what was it? Like, no country was ever hurt by trade or whatever. Like, every time you make a deal with them (laughs) for anything. And like, oh, my gosh. It's like, find a couple of new lines for I am happy with this trade. Adam Smith, let's go. (laughs) You want to make the game a little bit less uh, bland? Fix that. I don't know. That's one of the things people really remember about it, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, as a bad thing. (laughs) But you're saying you want to make it less bland. I don't know. Removing something that's vexing that everyone remembers wouldn't necessarily make it less bland. (laughs) <laughs> maybe might make it better but it wouldn't make it less bland hey stuff that's memeable sells yeah then why didn't Gigglemesh win he very nearly did but uh, the the Romaboos are a pretty big meme themselves so yeah Byzantium didn't they're 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 wannabes. They want to be Rome, the full size Rome. Rome was okay. I do notice that this uh, the um, winners do seem to be dominated by the more militarily aggressive civilizations. Like just going into the second round, we've got Gilgamesh, Genghis Khan, uh, Barbarossa, Ambiorix, uh, Hojo. Uh, Eleanor probably being the one exception to this rule. And then, uh, oh gosh, who was it? Is that Coupe and Trajan? So yeah, Eleanor and Coupe being the only, like, more peaceful, pacifistic leaders. Every other one of them is, like, a pretty egregious warmonger, at least in my experience with Civ 6. Makes sense. And Civ 6 is a war game. Troll all. Really surprised Montezuma did not get into the second round. I think, uh, like, if people are just asked to pick their favorite, too, they 
you'll probably see very different reasoning for having a favorite leader. Like some people are just going to pick strong ones or they're going to pick leaders that they like to play. Some people are going to pick uh, leaders they like to see in the game, etc. Some might pick their favorite historic figures. Yeah, for sure. Or some will just pick a leader that represents their, you know, country of origin. The yeah. home field advantage. So there's a lot of factors that can go into why somebody is favored. Yeah, but I'm I'm really surprised that Montezuma did not make it into yeah, at least I'm a the second round. He he got beaten that bracket. C- considering yeah, how considering how much of a meme in Civilization Montezuma is. Yeah, but I feel like that the the impact of that just isn't what it was. Yeah, maybe not. And, and you do have more total uh, like militant type uh, leaders too. So it's not like you see one of like three or four people at the start of the game. You're like, oh crap, I'm going to get attacked in the classical era at the latest. And it's it's only like those couple people who would do that. Next topic. Yeah, I know. Technical difficulty. Technical difficulty. Our next topic is technical difficulty. Okay, next up, third by Parkhoon. Civ 6 is done! So how does Civ 5 look in comparison? Well, as a bit of a clickbait <sighs> title in the first place, which I approve of. Clickbait's always fun on forums. Um, and it, since it is a fairly long post, the TLDR that uh, is placed by the poster uh, is that Civ 6 is better in almost every way except the thing that I liked most about Civ 5, which was being the feeling of emergent storytelling. And he thinks the cause is uh, Civ's agenda system, or Civ 6's agenda system. I don't know about that. And um, it, that's kind of ironic, because I, I would have thought that the whole intent behind the agenda system was to create more emergent storytelling and give the leaders more personality. Yeah. So that kind of backfired on them. At least for this uh, poster. Yeah, I don't know that I agree with it. I mean, I'm not a good person to ask that, though, because I never looked at any Civ game or any strategy game for that matter through such a lens. So uh, I just like didn't care <laughs> about whether it's uh, emergent storytelling or not. Uh, I would say that the design of Civ 6 is overall better than 5. Your incentives are less broken. Uh, there's more long-range planning. Uh, there's a lot more interacting mechanics to consider. Uh, and while the agenda system is kind of... I mean, it's not perfect, but there's some extra Diplo stuff there, too, if you are uh, not just min-maxing, like, MP-esque style uh, gameplay. And I will say that there are some things that 5 was a little bit better with, uh, especially, like, the sound it plays when you lose a unit, or uh, the Shaka's theme, or whatever. Like, there, there's things like that where so 5 had its uh, moment of charm. And uh, maybe its city-state system was a little bit uh, like you could buy, you had like a gold victory basically through city states, and maybe that's better. I don't necessarily the, miss the, the Diplo system now. I don't know. I don't necessarily miss the the gold purchasing of city state alliances, but I do miss being able to bully the city states into giving you tribute. <laughs> that was a very disappointing uh, removal of a mechanic from Civ Six for sure. 
I, I feel like the gold is better than the the current model though, in that you had like you had a tangible thing that your civ was good at slash better at than other people that translated into winning power in a way that the current diplo system really doesn't match, and the diplo victory and Civ Six is as awkward as any diplo victory is, or at least in Civ Five there was. You were outperforming somebody at something in order to win diplomatically. I think a big problem with Civ 6's uh, city states is that the questing mechanic for them in, in Civ 6, I think, just does not work as well as it did in Civ 5. Like, they only have it's one quest awful. per. Yeah, they only have one quest per era, and a lot of times it's some stupid little thing that, like, I could do, but it's not worth doing whereas in in civ 5 i remember the quests being much more uh interesting and much more worth pursuing so yeah, a, lot of, a lot of times in civ 6 i've done that a turn before i get the quest it's like are you serious <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah there's you, that too yeah you get that eureka for that tech like the turn before going into a new era and then suddenly that city state you actually want an envoy for says hey get us the eureka for that tech you just got the eureka for Ugh. I think the Civ Six's city states could have been dramatically improved if they just had multiple quests available, like in each era, and had like more of a revolving door of quests. Like especially things like when barbarians pop up near them, hey, help us take care of these barbarians. Like that should just be something that always shows up in their questing list. And that was also in, in Civ Five. That was just a passive thing. Is whenever. There were barbarians attacking a city-state. If you killed a barbarian unit, like, in the city-state's borders or adjacent, you got, you know, points towards alliances with them. And I don't think Civ Six has that. No. Like, they could be getting completely, you know, on the on the verge of being completely raised by barbarians. And you can come in and fight all the barbarians off and disperse the uh, outpost, and the city-state won't give a damn. I get thanked more for barbarian cleanup from the other civs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is a bit awkward. Although I guess that would be a little bit maybe possibly broken with the um, Barbarian Clans mode if you could bribe the Barbarians to attack oh, a city-state and then go and kill the Barbarians to get points envoys for the city-state. I don't think you can... Can you bribe the Barbarians to attack city-states in the Clans mode or is it only other civilizations? Yes, you can. Yeah, that's something that might be a little bit broken if they had implemented that. But you have that. to pay them to you have to pay them to to attack them in the first place, so you're not really gaining it. True, but it, it, I guess it would be a backdoor return of the uh, gold buying city states. That's perfectly fine in my book. Yeah, I guess. I'd rather be able to buy them with gold, although gold is a lot more prevalent in Civ Six than it was in Civ Five. Yeah, I do feel like things are a lot more expensive, though, uh, to make up for that. Yeah. yeah so you get the had... usual. People are already on the graphics on the first page. Yeah, interesting. Some people really like slash dislike uh, what the what Civ has done with religions over time. I think Man. it was better in Civ, Civ Five, except that you had to roll the dice for the profit. That's kind of a big except, though. And I, yeah. I don't know that the, the religious victory, quote-unquote, needs to go. I mean, it kind of does roll into a military victory in practice, which most victories do, honestly. 
Well, functionally, yeah, it's almost the same thing. You just build units and then attack, you know, quote, uh, cities and other units. Yeah, but not even that. Like, they interact with military units in that military units at war with them will kill them. So you have to be able... If somebody is trying to not lose or trying to win the game, which in either case they'll make the same choice, they'll probably militarily resist your your missionaries and etc. if they can't do so otherwise. And that means you'll probably need to use military to forcibly put the religion there or remove the civ that's resisting that way from the game. And if everyone's resisting that way, then you might as well be doing conquest because that'll save you the step. I don't think I've ever seen a city switch religions based on pressure. In Civ Six, on pressure alone, no. I I would like to see that aspect of the game improved a bit. The uh, the pressure from religion make it actually something relevant. Yeah, because that would be a way uh, without utilizing the units. Yeah, I think the only time I've ever seen a city flip from religion in a Civ Six is when it's like a forward settled city that's just like completely surrounded by that religion, but. The yeah. person who founded it put their religion there. Either it, the city was founded with the religion because they have that, uh, you know, f- ability, mm-hmm. or they sent a missionary along with it and converted it, and then it, you know, <laughs> flipped over to the other religion a few turns later. Anyway, yeah, and pressure initially converts reasonably effectively. So, like, I know when I was doing that one religious game I did with uh, Jusain, I made a point of putting out missionaries into city states early. Because that effectively became like source nodes that then had to be contested later, and greatly delayed any religious pressure he could put on me in return. And then I just killed his uh, religious units with military units. But hey, <laughs> I sort of sort of utilized the sort of utilized the religious game there. Yeah, there's another post, uh, I think it's the sixth post from uh, Jasper on this thread that says, What's funny is the game kind of does that for you through that Golden Age historical records that highlight all of your firsts, etc. Which I think is in reference to the original poster's uh, comment about how Civ Six isn't as good at storytelling. So this was another feature that was like trying to emphasize the storytelling aspect of Civilization VI by, uh, you know, like actually tracking the you know, history of events for you in a, a readable format. Uh, so yeah, there was definitely an effort made for Civilization VI to have that storytelling element, but apparently it didn't work out for some people. Yeah, it seemed to work better the first, you know, the first couple of months that we had Civ and you were playing through things for the first time when it was all new. But as you go later in the game, it gets kind of, you're like, yeah, yeah, click, 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 because it's one of 10,000 notifications on the side. Yeah, as you become more and more of a power gamer, uh, I, I think the storytelling aspect kind of does fall to the wayside as you're more, you know, just min-maxing things and don't really care what the other leaders have to say or, or in many cases, do, even. That's why I try to avoid being a power gamer. And you're trying to optimize your outcome, though, because you have victory conditions, right? So you're mostly going to make choices towards whatever victory condition you're pursuing. This, again, is one of the reasons I really liked Civilization IV's, uh, I always get these two confused, it was either the Domination or the Conquest Victory, where you just had to have, like, 60% of the, uh, map area and population, 
Yeah, because you could you could get there any way you wanted, uh, whether it was through conquest, through you know vassalage, through peaceful vassalage, through your own uh, colonization. Like, however, you you were kind of free to tell your own civilization story and weren't like bound by those rigid victory conditions. The uh, the vassal system in Civ Four really sped up uh, closing out games that were over. And what happened a lot of times is that you would actually trip conquest and domination at the same time. If you would just pain vassal everybody over the course of a few turns once you were strong enough. And then, like, because you're absorbing such a large amount of land at once, because vassal count for half towards domination or something, you would meet the standards for both. And that was fine, because, man, you could close out a military victory so fast that's if war compared to any of the newer ones. I am really eager to try out uh, Humankind this fall and see how their victory point fame system works, because that looks like it could be a very interesting system. Yeah, I want to see. I want to see them put my doubts to rest. That would make it a really interesting game. It's a. It's basically looks as if they took the era score from Civ Six and just turned those into victory points. Yeah. Yeah. See, I like that concept because. I've worked all this stuff to do, get these points for the era, and then after we hit the change of the era, those points don't matter anymore. So why did I work, do all these things with my sieve to get these points if it's not going to be a lasting thing? And I'm sure somebody's going to say, well, your bonus is you got a golden age. But yeah, but if I'm continuously hitting those, why is my like reputation not higher? Wow, this country just can't fail. You know, that kind of thing. Presumably, the uh, outputs you're getting from Golden Age would yeah, put you in the dominant position in the game. And there is the the interesting, like, strategic element of being like, okay, I already have more than enough points for a Golden Age. Should I delay doing these other things, like building this wonder, uh, or you know, upgrading? my unique unit or whatever until you know for like 10 turns until after the era flips over so that i get the points for the next era at the cost of you know potentially someone beating you to that wonder or something like that so that that does add a, a little bit of an interesting decision to the game yeah i guess i don't know how often in practice you would delay something that's beneficial though yeah, it, well, especially if it is a wonder, because, you know, you do have that ticking clock element where if another sieve beats you to it, uh, the other sieve probably doesn't care which era it's built in, especially well, if it's really, an AI. I would say most things, because you're not you're no longer talking about just the next era, but the era, era after that, where any alteration in your decisions would manifest as a benefit, whereas the stuff you're deciding to do now is going to snowball and improve your empire's position immediately if you're doing it now. So it's hard to make a case that a payoff of a somewhat easier golden age, however many turns in the future, is going to be better than doing things that help your position more immediately, which will then improve your productive capacity as you progress. Yeah, and a lot of times for me, the answer is it isn't, and I just do the thing anyway, and yeah. ha- and be 20 points over the uh, <laughs> uh, golden age threshold. And so that happens. Uh, so I don't know how often it becomes a consideration, really. I mean, maybe in edge cases, like you, if it's something really minor that you would go out of your way to do for error score, but you don't need to do it right now to confer a benefit from it, then, yeah, you know, maybe. Maybe you delay that. 
Well, it depends a little bit there, but it's nowhere near the depth that Civ Six offers elsewhere. Well, and it depends on how close you are to going into the era. There are definitely situations where I'm like, oh, I'm not planning on going to war with anybody like in the immediate future, so I can wait on upgrading to my unique unit. Yeah. You know, especially if it's only like five or ten turns, you know. I'm not going to wait a whole era because then that unique unit's going to be useless when I do upgrade to it. But yeah, if it's like, if I'm just a handful of turns, you know, I might delay settling that city next to that natural wonder a few turns, right? And then just Ooh, gold up or sell. And then just gold buy, you know, the monument and or granary when the city does get built. That's a tougher sell. I guess that city's then several turns behind where it could have been forever. And I don't know that the era score differential is going to merit that. Yeah, it depends on how much the era points are worth. I think a setting next to a natural wonder is like worth two or three or something, which is maybe not worth it. It is if you're trying to not have a dark age. Yeah, well then I would be doing it now anyway. Yeah. Like the, depending on how many cities you have, too, the productive output of that city could easily outstrip the differential in Golden Age versus whatever. I don't know. It's something like you would consider at the margins, but otherwise pretty much not. I think I liked the Art Deco aesthetic a little bit more than I liked the Age of Exploration aesthetic. But that's a personal view. I don't really care about the art. <laughs> I personally think it would be neat if the uh, UI art would actually change as you progress through the game. That uh, would be too much. It might be, but it, it could be a cool look. Yeah, it would be cool, but I would never, ever advocate for something like that over just making the AI more user-friendly. Yeah, obviously do that first. has massive room for improvement in that regard. But I mean, yeah, it's one of those things, like, would this be cool? Sure. So if it were free in development time, then absolutely put it in. But it's, and unfortunately, it isn't. So. Right. <laughs> but it would also be kind of an intern-level project well, so... Yeah, if you wanted your artist to have a project while you were working on trying to improve the AI, well, hey, why not? Maybe. Uh, I, I think we're making it sound more trivial than it would be, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, none of us are <laughs> artists, so yeah. Yeah. Well, plus it has to, like, it, you can't just have, like, one person decide on the art and then have that fit in with the rest of the game's art or whatever. Unless you're, like, a small team, right? Like, the there's one person doing all the art for the game. Well, okay, then their decision is final. But I would venture a guess that you do not have a single artist for every interaction in Civ Five, And that single artist also decides how the UI looks and all that. So now you have coordination between people, and it's probably not trivial. Is it easier than some other things? Yeah, probably. Yeah. But it's probably not trivial. And I, I would not say this is just like an intern's job or something. <laughs> and also, if there's like 10 eras or whatever, eight eras, I forget how many are in the game. If you make a change to the UI, you got to make that change eight times now. Yeah. Ugh. So it, it also makes maintenance harder. And it would make yeah. it harder to find certain bugs with the art and graphics. You're, you're now reminding me of things a little too close to memory in my own work when <laughs> you have to change more things as a result of any single change depending on your setup cascading yeah. changes yeah yeah this is something that just in the interest of human error you want to constrain if you can yeah but in a large project that becomes difficult to do 
Yeah, but then that's a case for keeping it simple in in terms of the design. Right. So yeah, it's not free, basically. <laughs> but I do agree, it would be cool if it were. If it were free, then I would absolutely say, yeah, go for it. Okay, so does anyone else have anything else they want to add to this uh, Civ 5, Civ 6 comparison? Or any more comments about the threat itself? I think Civ 6 is better, but I kind of like Civ 5. Yeah, I would say Civ 6 is better. I like the elegance of Civ 5, but I also like... And I like it... Complicated. Oh, you're cutting out there, Canis. Yep. It's complicated. I like the elegance of Civ 5, but I also like the complexity of Civ 6. So it's like, I like them both. Yeah, Civ 5 definitely did feel like a little bit more of a streamlined uh, play experience. Yeah, but it had perverse incentives, too. Yeah. And I mean that in the sen- in the strategy sense, not actual perverse incentives. Tall versus but- wide cheese. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank goodness that's gone. Yeah, it is nice to feel like I can build a city when I want to build a city. Or and need to build a city. permanently hamper you. And there's actual incentives to take people's cities, which means you are also much more at risk of people wanting to take your cities. Yeah, you don't have to just raise every single city you capture because you can't possibly afford to keep them all. Because you can't possibly hold them all with loyalty. Yeah, that's the issue now, but it's at least it means that your entire empire doesn't become crippled. Well, you yeah, can hold them now with loyalty, though. Like, the loyalty system, I mean, some might find it annoying or whatever, but you absolutely can, if you plan for it and maneuver properly, keep every single city you capture in Civ Six. Even on deity, that's that's a thing you can possibly do. Yeah, one of the in uh, most cases, it's not that daunting to do it. It's a little bit annoying if you're like doing intercontinental invasions. But again, if you're planning for it, you can make it happen. Yeah, even for intercontinental invasions, I've found that uh, one of the most effective strategies is you just get the the cities down to like zero hit points, knock out their walls, get the city down to zero hit points, but don't capture it. Then go on to the next city, get it down to zero, and then send one unit back to each city and capture like three cities at the same time. So they all provide loyalty pressure to each other. Yep. Ideally, you have enough uh, military built up that you can just pressure multiple cities at the same time. But yeah, certainly you can pin one down like that, too. Yeah, the, yeah. the end result is that you just need to capture the cities within close enough time to each other. Yeah, within yeah, like two so or three turns of each pressure. other. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, it yeah. helps to be in a golden age and it helps to have, you know, the appropriate policies and all that stuff, too. Yeah, of and course. If and if you're really lucky, the capital's coastal. <laughs> yeah, and then you don't have to do nearly as much work. Yeah. Let me just start with the capital and work my way through the rest of you. Uh, every so often, Civ is nice to me. Anytime Civ doesn't crash in multiplayer, it's nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, that is one thing that is improved with six. Is it does it is not crashy, crashy, crashy. <sighs> yeah, Civ Five eventually stabilized, but Civ Six release was in much better state than Civ Five release, and as time has progressed. Yeah, Civ 6 has maintained a reliability slash playability advantage in that regard. Yeah, it's very unusual when we have crashes in multiplayer and stuff now, and it's usually 
an outside issue. Like it's been like graphics drivers. It's not Civ's fault. Or apparently Microsoft or Apple breaking things. Yeah, for a change. As we, uh, I think, briefly mentioned uh, last episode. Yep. All right, so next topic is we have another thread on Civ Fanatics from Hellenism Salesman uh, titled History Simulator or Game, Civ's Precarious Balancing Act. And it begins by saying grab some snacks and find somewhere comfortable to sit because this is a long post. Eh, I've seen longer. I've written longer. This is one isn't that bad. Uh, anyway, um, basically, this thread is like asking uh, or, you know, talking about the balance between historical, you know, simulation, for lack of a better word, historical accuracy and, uh, you know, just being a fun 4X game and uh, specifically the struggles that civilization has. Uh, being a game that is like a pure 4X and not like, uh, you know, Crusader Kings or Total War style, like actual historic, uh, scenario. Okay. Let me put it this way Civ 6 is much, or Civ in general, is closer to uh, pure strategy slash 4X than something like Crusader Kings or Europe Universalis. And I hold objectively. And I, I will challenge people on this, that both EU4 and CK2 and all those games like that are also not even close to simulation games. They are strategy games first, and that is by necessity, because you are abstracting history to create game mechanics. And those abstractions are extremely simplifying and have causal implications that cannot be modeled to represent historical causality. And if you can't represent historical causality, you cannot have a historical outcome, period. So what these games then have to do is ask, okay, well, how granular are these mechanics going to be? And how much of a nod we are going to take from them? uh, How much of a nod we're going to take from history to create the mechanics? Because just because you can't make it historically accurate or you can't model the causal factors that go into, say, the conquest of the Incan Empire in the EU4 environment with fidelity to history. You can still say, well, okay, maybe we can't do that, but we shouldn't have spaceships in our EU4 game. Uh, so there's uh, there's obviously some degree of abstraction that you settle on. And whatever degree of abstraction that is, it's best to keep it consistent for the game so you don't get ridiculous outcomes where some things are considered not okay with history and other things are considered okay with history arbitrarily. And that is a major problem in the Paradox games, and much less so in Civ, because Civ really doesn't try to be a history uh, simulator at all. Not at all. It, 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 it takes the nods, like you know, your unique unit is based on something that was important to that civilization in history. Uh, but ultimately, this is a 4X game. So is it possible in principle to have a perfect 4X? I don't think so, because everyone's going to have different preferences on how much they want their games abstracted. And also because our hardware is nowhere near good enough to model things that could approximate reality. At least not right now. Yeah, I always kind of look at Paradox's games, especially Crusader Kings, as being almost as much an RPG as it is a strategy game. Uh, It's very character-driven, you know, and including character stat-driven. You've got got experience, you level up, you get perks, you know, all those sorts of things. You're managing relationships between characters. uh, And that's something that, you know, Civilization doesn't do. 
like and never has done and it something that probably wouldn't really fit in the civilization like trying to model social relationships uh over the entire span of human history is like not a feasible thing to do and I would like to point out, even there, CK2 very intentionally deviates from anything even kind of plausible from a historic standpoint. I mean, I'm not even counting, like, the devil cults or whatever. <laughs> well, and, and I, would I just even... mean, like, the, the way you can abuse some of the character interaction systems in that game to get ridiculous outcomes is pretty hilarious. And I think part of the charm of the game, honestly. But it certainly isn't a history simulator from an RPG standpoint any more than Civ, uh, Civ 6 is a history simulator from a 4X slash, you know, bigger picture standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> and I would even, I think, go as far as to say that uh, you, you, like, if you're talking about a pure 4X strategy game, because Crusader Kings isn't really a 4X strategy game, right? Because it's missing the, the explore and the, well, I guess it does have the expand bits, but uh, like a, a traditional 4X game is you start with nothing, right? And you, you build your way up. And in my opinion, that's just like fundamentally incompatible with trying to simulate actual history because yeah. like you, you start from that position where the possibility space is almost endless and then as endless as it can be in a, in a video game anyway, and then on a finite map. Uh, so, like, right there from turn zero, like, you just have cascading decisions where, like, everything you do, like, you, even if you start on a historical start map, uh, with all the civs in, in the places that they were historically, like, you just move your settler a few turns, and you've completely changed all of history, you know? So, yeah. I, I don't really know that aiming for historic simulation or historic accuracy is a viable or even desirable, you know, goal. Like you can take the influences from history and, you know, by all means, take as much as you, you feel works in your game, but you know, we should not be trying to, uh, mimic actual historic events, uh, in these games, because then you also lose the decision-making aspect because, uh, you're just playing the same game every time. Yeah, I'm a little more touchy on this topic because of the paradox debates over it. I don't think that nearly comes to a head on Stiffmanatics or any of the Stiff forums to the same extent. Because they are pretty different games. Now, that isn't to say, of course, that I don't want, wish that Civ would take inspirations from history for, for certain adding certain mechanics or expanding certain mechanics, but uh, you also have the the aspect in, in civilization where civil, uh, Fraxis and 2K are taking a much more, like, politically correct and, you know, politically sensitive approach to developing civilization, where, you know, there are a lot of things that happen in history that the developers are actively trying to avoid modeling in their game. Uh, we haven't <laughs> seen slavery m modeled in a civilization game since Civilization 4, at least not explicitly. Uh, they ignore a lot of the more uh, questionable aspects uh, of uh, European colonialism in in civilization. You know, we're, we don't have we're not having holocausts and red purges happening in uh, civilization games, even though the game actually does allow genocide. <laughs> uh, so um, and, you know, eliminating like entire religions uh 
So crusades, yes. Uh, slavery, no. So yeah, there's, you know, they're walking this very tight rope of like what is, uh, you know, politically correct to put in the game and what is not. And I, I've never gotten the feeling from Paradox's games that they care as much about that sort of thing. Well, politics ruins everything, so it's kind of wise to stay out of that to the extent that you can. But I mean, yeah, sure, you, you could burn every city to the ground, and if you think about the implications of that, it is more monstrous than anything that happened in history. Yeah. Just because the scale of, like, burning all of Europe and Russia and then, uh, like, all of China to the ground, every, every single major population center just gets burned. It, history has never seen anything like that, but you can do that in Civ if you want. It's, but yeah, well, and the, the game mechanics the, actively encourage it, and I think that's to the game's credit that the the politics out of that. Yeah, well, and you know, to that point, the civilization actually like the victory conditions and mechanics encourage, uh, especially like we said before in Civ Five, where you know, cap every city you captured was a permanent happiness hit to your entire empire, <laughs> and you couldn't keep all of those cities without raising them. That's one of those perverse incentives you were talking about. Is yeah. uh, Civ Five put perverse incentives on players to commit genocide? Uh, thankfully, Civ Six doesn't put nearly as strong a pressure <laughs> on players to commit genocide. I, I wasn't thinking in those terms, though. I was thinking in, in strict strategic terms. Yeah, but it works like, in that sense you too. You were doing something that would normally be harmful, and that penalizes success. Therefore, you're disincentivizing success to some success to some degree. Right. But you're right. There's also the it is a good thing to burn cities aspect, I guess. I just don't really care about that. And then you compare that again to Civ Four with its vassalage system, which we also talked about earlier, where uh, you could beat another Civ into submission, but then they can surrender and you can subjugate them without even necessarily having to conquer a city, let alone raise one. I think in practice, you, you probably would have had to conquer at least one city. But like hypothetically, you could just have their capital surrounded by your army and they could surrender without you even having to necessarily take the city through military uh, You had action. to have enough war success. I have, in some of my old Let's Plays, capitulated uh, civilizations without actually conquering them. It usually involved dukes, or they would send a huge number, like a huge stack, and you know, I would just kill it all with collateral initiative and kill their units. And then I had enough of uh, an advantage and enough war success that they just capitulate immediately without capturing cities. So yeah, it was certainly possible. And it was very common, in fact, if you were snowballing, there was something called an Islan target check. It was eight or more border provinces, if I remember correctly. That would, if there was eight or more uh, border provinces adjacent to them that wasn't you, they were more likely to capitulate as well. Uh, and very often, that Islan target thing was tripped by another subject of yours. Uh, so as long as you were succeeding in the conflicts, and you were stronger by enough, you could really, you could vassal people fast. A couple turns, that's it. Like, picture a war that, like, takes less than three minutes real time and, like, is, uh, like, three turns long and they're capitulated. I, that's, like, unheard of in modern Civ, but that le legitimately happened sometimes. Right. So anyway, I guess the, the point that I'm getting at is, yeah, sure, you could maybe hypothetically build a game that models slavery and colonialism and holocausts and uh, McCarthyism, uh, but would you necessarily want to? And would the developers and publishers want to? 
And what about that makes it a better game from a decision-making slash mechanical standpoint, too? Right. Yeah, I, I like the Axis and Allies uh, board game uh, a lot. Uh, but one of the problems with the Axis and Allies board game is, like, you can only play it so many times because the starting condition is always exactly the same. And there are very specific, like, optimal starting moves that basic can, uh, on, like, the first couple turns, swing the game wildly one way or the other and basically determine out the outcome uh, long before the game has concluded, which is also a problem with civilization. So... Like, you either do these things that are the optimal moves, which, you know, may or may not be based on or inspired by the actual history of World War II, uh, or you lose the game. So, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of room in the Axis and Allies board game for, like, really creative strategy or decision making. At least not, uh, and uh, at least not also allowing you to, uh, have viable, uh, be viable to win the game. Anyway, uh, Canis, Mackie, you, either of you have anything to add? Uh, well, I was sitting here thinking if I if I'd run across other games like that where you have to do a certain order at the beginning of the game or you're hosed, kind of. Civ is I, far, far more flexible about that. I know several games that are like that. None of them are very fun for me. Yeah, there's some that are like more puzzle-like, and that's probably a more appropriate venue for it. Like, they don't have a lot of replay value, but they're still, like, figuring out those optimal moves the first time is still interesting. And it can still be a good game. It just wouldn't be designed in the same way that something like Civ is. It would be good initially just to figure out the puzzle, but then there's no long-term gameplay. Well, the the, the figuring out the puzzle is the gameplay, and then you're done. Yeah. It's kind of like if you're playing a role-playing game, or like a like a JRPG or something. Like you've seen the story, you know how to win all the battles. You can replay it if you want, but like it's going to be the same stuff. You're going to get the exact same story, and there might be some different mechanics you can use, but that's going to be limited to an extent. Yeah, this is going to be very finite things that will oh, be gosh. different. Yeah, especially in like a Final Fantasy game where you got to go through all the dank, unskippable tutorials again. Oh. Yeah, well, that's just, yeah, that, that is annoying. That's that's annoying design that you can't skip that stuff. Well, because it's like integrated into the story, but it's like, oh my gosh, I know how the friggin' upgrade tree works. Like, let me just get on with it. <laughs> Pokemon games do this really bad. Yeah, you think that some of them would have some consideration for veterans of the series and just let you skip some stuff, but whatever. You'd think yeah. that considering their audience is almost 40% old people? <laughs> old people? It's true. <laughs> I was like, you called me old. <laughs> old as in older than the age of 20? Yeah, I know. The way you said <laughs> <laughs> uh... But yeah, certainly... The majority of their audience has probably played game- previous iterations in the series, and they get lots of new players every time. But and I would say that for any given release, probably most of their players have played an earlier entry in the series before. And so, yeah, it is really annoying design-wise that you can't skip tutorials in something like that. I agree. Well, and even with a game that's more open-ended, you know, like take something, for instance, like uh, Fallout New Vegas, right? 
which is designed to be played multiple times because there's multiple outcomes to the story. You can build characters in all kinds of different ways. There's multiple resolutions to various quests. But still, like, there's only so many ways to resolve, like, the Good Springs quest, right? And every time you play the game, you're going to go through Prim, you know, like, you could just choose, I guess, to run past all of that stuff, but eventually you get to the point where you've seen those early parts of the game so many times that it just becomes a grind to go through those early quests again to get to the later quests where the possibility space opens up more. Yeah, although you could probably do some save stuff with that. Yeah, but you even if you do that, you might not necessarily be able to rebuild your character unless you're uh, using like a mod or something that lets you do that. Because once you leave oh, Good Springs, uh, the game prompts you, are you sure? And if you say yes, you can't go back and, and change your character. So if you wanted to play with different character builds, uh, you've got to at least start at the point where you leave Good Springs, which means you still got to go through Prim. You still got to go through Novak. Uh, unless you want to just go the other direction and brave the Death Claws, but, you know... Good luck with oh, that. Oh, they can be. I can sneak around them. It, it can be done. I'm not saying it can't, but like you know, like I said, good luck. <laughs> Ironically, of all the games to have a built-in compensator for this, it's the Soul series that comes to mind. Yeah, it was really annoying to make new builds in Dark Souls One, but by Dark Souls Three, I think even Two had it. There were items you could collect, and you could, if you set it up right, get as many as you needed. That just lets you completely change your character build on the spot. <laughs> yep. Uh, and I think The Witcher 3 also had an item that you could buy from shopkeepers that lets you completely reassign all of your skill points. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was actually going to bring up Dark Souls 2 in, in uh, uh, reference to um, what Maki just said, which is like, yeah, there you can go after those uh, Death Claws, and there are also people who have beaten Dark Souls without taking any damage with a Guitar Hero controller. So... <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs> oh yeah, you've never seen that? Yeah, no yeah. hit, no hit. What? Uh, all bosses completed. Guitar Hero, Dark Souls runs. Wow. Yeah, I think the guy who ran all the series games consecutively without taking damage used the normal controller, but somebody's done that too. I wouldn't be surprised if there's also someone who's beaten it with a dance dance pad <laughs> or like a steering wheel. At at this point, honestly, at this point, I would not be surprised if you could find me a YouTube video of somebody like beating Dark Souls with like a potato and some electrodes plugged into it. Yeah, yeah, that's how people are these days. Weird. Whatever. Point being, it's nice to bypass the tedium, and I really appreciate when game developers do consider the time of the players playing their games. And it was two, one of those things that really was off-putting to me about Civ Five and Six because they were such regressions in that regard. I was going to say to Civ's credit, like the early parts of the game are the least tedious and tend to be the most interesting and enjoyable parts of the game. It's as the game goes on that things become more tedious. tedious. Yeah, but the uh, the ability to manage later turns has been so so neglected compared to Civ Four. It's like meme levels of bad if you compare them side by side. Yeah, again, I'm I'm hoping to uh, see humankind come up with some creative solutions to some of these problems when it comes out in the fall. Well, I mean, that that's Soren's, right? No, no, it's from Amplitude, which is the oh, uh, Amplitude, right. developers who made uh, like Endless Legend and Endless Space. Sorry, I'm always confusing humankind with the other one. 
Yeah, I think you're thinking of Old World, I think. Yep, that's the one I'm thinking of. That Which, one comes out in July. I would I, expect Old World to have a similarly good UI to 4, but we'll see. Yeah, I think uh, Old World, though, is still an epic exclusive for the foreseeable future, right? Yeah, oh, so it's not coming out for another year. At yep. least, yeah. <laughs> Effectively. It's a shame when good things, when bad things happen to good games. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I kind of see it almost as like a blessing in disguise, because like I said, I'm looking forward more to uh, humankind. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I ain't got time to be playing like four Forex uh, uh, TBS <laughs> oh, yeah. games at the same uh, in the same fall. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's a good thing that the potential Civ 7 is at least not until next year or something like that. Because that gives time to play humankind. Yeah, unless we see something at uh, don't we have E3 coming up soon or did that already happen? I think it's going on right now. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, unless we see so something. Yeah. Although, I, uh, speaking of uh, the games that Fraxis is working on, I did see some articles on the internet reporting that one of the games might be a Marvel-skinned version of XCOM. Because every video game now has to be a Marvel <laughs> game, apparently. There's only two Marvel games. And that's Legos and Marvel Avengers. Well, there's also, like, all kinds of games that have, like, Marvel skins in them. Like, Fortnite's got Marvel skins. I wouldn't be surprised if Minecraft has a bunch of Marvel stuff in it. Well, well, I know you can You can, can put your own stuff in Minecraft, right? I'm not sure that really counts. Well, like, I mean, like, official, like, stuff. Oh, maybe. I, I, I haven't heard of that, but I haven't played Minecraft in ages. Because I, I do think you have to distinguish between things that the uh, developers explicitly provide slash officially, uh, officially provide as options versus like what somebody would mod or bring into the game on their own. Yeah. Well, thank you all for listening to Polycast episode number 385. I have been your regular co-host, Mega Bears fan, along with Canis Albinus. Have a nice day, everybody. Makalua. Ooh, lunchtime. And the me and team. You can cook pancakes on those hot takes. <laughs> Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6, Time Clips. Copyright Take 2 and Rack. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.